Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to share that we are part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Remember to subscribe to our program if you haven't already and tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. You know all that stuff. It really does help get the word out so more people can participate in the conversations just like the one we're having today with Todd Rose. Todd Rose is the co-founder and president of Populous, a think tank committed to ensuring that all people have the opportunity to pursue fulfilling lives in a thriving society. Prior to Populous, he was faculty member at Harvard University, where he founded the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality and directed the Mind, Brain, and Education program. Todd is also the best-selling author of Collective Illusions, which we'll be talking about in depth today, Dark Horse, and The End of Average. Todd, thanks so much. It was so cool to have you. Uh, Steve Hayes mentioned your name, and I just started, I started reading up on you, and it's such a thrill to have you here. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wanted to start with a little bit of your personal background. Uh, fascinated by your story from going to uh, high school dropout. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but high school dropout to like not only like getting your graduate degree, your doctorate at Harvard, but teaching there. How does you know what I actually I was curious about is, is that more of a reflection on your like superhero level of development? You know, you, you transformed or or is it maybe a reflection of how our education system isn't really tailored for different types of learning or some sort yeah. of combination thereof? I, I mean, I'll take the easy way out, which is it's a combination of both. I mean, you're, you're right. Just to, and I'll jump in. You, you cut me off when I've rambled too long. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I grew up in rural America uh, and, you know, I, I, my personality is one that I love debating and I love questioning things. And um, it, at the time, the place I was living prized conformity and obedience <laughs> to authority. So it was probably never really going to work out. Um, but <clears throat> in school, did really poorly. And, and so it's it's it, it culminated um I dropped out of high school with a 0 0.9 GPA, which, uh, you know, <laughs> you have to like try for, you, for do. GPA. <laughs> you do. So we could do a whole episode on and how, how to fail that, how to fail intentionally that, that, that badly. But um, yeah, it was, it was a interesting start to my adult life because, you know, shortly uh, after that, uh, my girlfriend at the time found out she was pregnant um, within the first two years uh, two kids um, were on welfare, uh, worked a string of minimum wage jobs and sort of hit rock bottom uh, where <laughs> I had taken a job um, as a home health care assistant, quite literally giving enemas to people. That was my job uh, because it paid a dollar more an hour. Um, and so that was kind of like the rock bottom part. And um, yeah. And then tried to turn my life around. I, look, I, and we can talk about that journey. Um, just a sec, but to your question, I, look, I think, you know, we now know that there, this idea of an average person doesn't really exist, but all around the world, we standardize and scaled institutions, particularly education that are one size fits all or have been historically. And so it's just, it doesn't work for most people. Um, it certainly didn't work for me. And I internalized a lot of that friction as suggesting I'm just not very smart. And so most of my early adult life was sort of overcoming that and realizing that wasn't true and then getting on a path of, you know, a more fulfilling life and actually contributing to society. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it, it it's 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 interesting as as I learned a little bit more about your story and just even what you shared here. It some of it resonates because listen, you know, as as dads, uh, as husbands, or just as somebody who wants to make something of himself, there was a moment in time when um, I just thought we were everything that we were trying was failing. Um, I was really scared that we weren't going to be able to, you know, that we were going to be living under a bridge. So uh, I offered a bunch of people in the community to shovel poop, to shovel dog poop (laughs) in their backyard. I was not, and I had already been a stockbroker at that point and produced (laughs) theater and like all these fancy things, but I was just not. And then here you are and you were in, in inducing poop. (laughs) So there was another part of your story though, that um, when you first got to Boston, it it also reminded me when we first got to LA, we had nothing. We had, you know, uh, we, we had each other, me and Lisa, who've been married now for over 25 years, but we, we, we had nothing. Um, we, we, we were trying to, we didn't have a job. We didn't have friends. We didn't have contacts. We didn't, all we had was this truck, this, my beloved, uh, it was a Mazda 2200. And, nice. um, I finally got a job about a month in. I finally got a job as a messenger. So you can only imagine how heartbroken and horrified I was when I walked out one day and I realized that my truck was stolen. No. So it just, when you shared the story uh, about you, when you first arrived in Boston, it really resonated. I mean, so, but you know, I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you arrived there, but mostly it sounds like you've, um, things have gotten better since you're, yeah, 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 definitely, definitely better. Um, yeah, it was funny because, you know, I, um, you know, the, the turning point for me is I ended up going to, got my GED, went um, to college at night at Weber State University, open enrollment, had some really seminal experiences there, which we can fold back on if, if they're relevant. But, you know, got into Harvard for my my doctorate. And to your point, you know, I pride myself on being someone like, like I don't care how, how big you get. Or small. Like, nothing's too big, nothing's too small. You got to do what needs to be done. And, um, but we, we packed up everything we had in a, in a minivan and a U-Haul, which it turns out I'm terrible at packing U-Hauls. Um, I front loaded it. <laughs> and so we start driving. And if you get above 48 miles an hour, it starts to fishtail. And so we, we had to drive across the country at, at 48 miles an hour. But, um, but here's the, <laughs> so <clears throat> one of the things I learned about myself early is that I was a little impulsive and I would, if I got a credit card, I'd spend, I'd max it out so fast. So, the, the, the way around that was I just didn't have credit cards anymore. I was like, I'm not going to have them for now. So that kind of bit me in the ass on the way out to Boston because we didn't have a lot of money. And we had had an envelope with, with cash, all the cash we had. And it was doled out like, okay, we're going to sleep in this Walmart parking lot. Maybe by the time we get to Des Moines, we could get a hotel. So I had, it was working. And we, we literally calculated how much gas would cost and everything. And it was fine until we got to Chicago. And all of a sudden, there was these things called toll roads, oh. which I, I've never even heard of. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, what, wait, what do you mean I got to pay to drive on this road now? And yeah. so we're paying. And we start realizing by the time we get to upstate New York that we don't have enough. Like, if we keep paying tolls at this rate, we won't have enough to get gas to get to Cambridge. And so right. I'm like, what do I do? I, I don't have a credit card. so. I pull up, uh, and this is when they had like toll operators, like guys, it was like 2000. Um, and I, I said, do you take checks? And the guy <laughs> said, nobody's ever asked me that question. He's like, I guess we do. And so I wrote $1 checks all through New York and into Boston. And I have any money in my account. So they all bounced. But, um, <laughs> so, so we, we roll up, um, to Cambridge, which might as well be another country. Um, and <laughs> it couldn't have started worse. Like we, uh, within a few days, we have to go figure out where our kid's going to go to school and we're driving there and somebody ran a red light, uh, totaled our minivan. Oh, My man. youngest son, who was three, broke his femur in half. Ah! And so we find ourselves in, um, at children's hospital in Boston. Don't know anybody. Yeah. And had to use the student loan money I'd gotten to pay for the surgery. And so we have, wow. so by the time I get to it, it, it by the time I arrive, arrive on campus for orientation, 
which is just exactly how you'd imagine it is at Harvard. You know, yeah. um, I'm just this com- country bumpkin. <laughs> like, but we, we ran out of money to the point where I, I couldn't afford to get a haircut. And so I thought, that's fine. I yeah. can cut my own hair. And so oh, I start God. trying. I start trying. And I do one part. And I'm like, ah. And I do the other one. I'm like, oh, that's not even. So I try to even it out. And so it goes so bad, I just had to shave it. <laughs> nice. So I roll up. And, and the thing is, is it's fine if you have a shaved head. But you have to have been in the sun for a while, right? I just have this like, like you know, like my, yeah, it's never seen the light of day. And so I just show up and I'm like, hi. <laughs> you know? And my, my introduction to the group was like eight doctoral students. And everyone's like, oh, I'm so-and-so. I went to Oxford. I spent two years in Europe finding myself. And all I could muster up was like, hi, I'm Todd Rose. This isn't my normal haircut. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was a good, it was a good start, right? Yeah. We've been interviewing guests on Let's Find Common Ground for about two years now. Richard, what have you learned from them? Ashley, I've been surprised that despite all of the polarization around us, that there are so many remarkable people working to find common ground. Every two weeks, we release new episodes of our podcast. There are more than 50 of them. Find them all on the Democracy Group website. Or at letsfindcommonground.org. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. I'm Richard Davies. We find common ground one episode at a time. You know, I was curious, uh, you know, how you... the, The work that you do, it incorporates... A number of other disciplines, you know, I see some of the insights are sociological insights. Some of the insights are, are undergirded by uh, an understanding of anthropology. I, uh, you know, I was, I was curious how you arrived at those. Like, were, were you curious about that kind of thing as a kid? Or is it something that over the course of your undergrad work and graduate work, you sort yeah. of zeroed in on? How did that all come about? It's a great question. So um, temperamentally, I love big ideas. And I particularly love, I'm like a sucker for like the island of misfit ideas. Like, like I just feel like if everybody agrees with it, like, eh. <laughs> like, I mean, it could be true. I'm just not yeah. that interested in it. Right. And so I love big ideas that other people don't necessarily agree with. But in terms of the interdisciplinary nature of things, um, I was really fortunate that at Harvard, I had come to study with uh, my mentor, a really renowned scientist named Kurt Fisher, who had actually founded what was the first truly interdisciplinary program in the country. Because now being interdisciplinary is sort of all the rage, but it was actually at the kiss of death mm. um, for scholars in the past. Like it just like 10 year structures don't aren't built that way. And they still really aren't, but like, so um, it was a program that Larry Summers, when he was president of Harvard had actually decided to fund and say, look, we need to start doing more of this kind of stuff. Cause I think most of the interesting questions in society now, just they don't really lend themselves to, to disciplinary boundaries very well. So if you're just looking at a problem and you're like, I'm a psychologist, but it's like, you know, you got one piece of the elephant and you're going to think you understand it. So this really, this program taught us how to think about a problem from different levels of abstraction and different disciplines. And it was, it was kind of crazy. I mean, it's, it's hard. I, I still remember because I was trained in neuroscience, psychology, and then learning and, and applying that to education, other kinds of things. And I remember um, one of the first conversations we had was like, we had a bunch of neuroscientists, psychologists, and educators, and it was like, okay, what's attention? And you're like, well, we all know, but you realize actually we had completely def- different definitions. You, they didn't really line up, and you're like, wow. And so, learning how to have conversations across discipline, and not just have conversations, but be able to synthesize, was such a skill. And so, I, I'm I'm glad you noticed that because I, it's something I'm proud of. I, I really love. I love going wide across disciplines and trying to synthesize um, into something that makes sense. It's also, it also, it becomes apparent, not just in the results of the surveys that, that you do or the studies that Populous does, uh, but it's also in the way that you gather the, the uh, information. You know, I was fascinated that 
I, I don't know if it's fair to say that you sort of trick the people who are participating in the survey to get the accurate data, but I'll, I'll let you describe some of your methodology. That's probably not the fairest way to put it. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. It's a, I mean, it, it's, um, if you, so if, if we step back and say, you know, we're, we're probably, it's funny at Populous, we're most known for our private opinion research, but that's completely accidental. Like, and instrumental, like there's a world we want to live in. And I'm, that's why this, this think tank exists. Um, but all of our theory of the case requires an accurate understanding of what people believe and value and prioritize, right. In order to get institutions to behave certain ways. And, you know, ever since about 2016, it's been abundantly clear that polling, which, which is already very difficult and, and people do a really good job at. But polling assumes you're trying to tell the truth. <laughs> like, so if, if people don't, whether they don't want to or don't feel like they can tell you the truth, then you're, then polling becomes a distorting effect in sort of public understanding. And then if our institutions are responding to that, you know, we can get in trouble in a hurry. So we, um, we didn't invent any of the methods. We just said, well, look, if we understand the sources of distortion, and we have three that we really focus on, like social pressure. We went and looked for the methodologies that existed, which there were in, in academia. They're just expensive and time consuming. And under normal conditions, you probably don't need them, right? Like if, if everyone feels comfortable telling the truth, I don't need what we call like the truth serum methodologies, right? Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's not the case, um, today. And so a lot of the methods, the reason they work, is under social pressure, you have to give people like two things. Anonymity, like they have to really believe there's no way um, that you can reverse engineer who who's saying what. And then second is plausible deniability. Like there's this weird psychology. Like if you're doing a poll, like right now, if I was asking you, and I'm like, no, 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 no it's just us. Or you're even just a digital one without another person. There's always this sense of like, you're about to answer the question and someone will burst into the room and be like, aha, I knew you were a closet. So-and-so. Right. Yeah. So, um, so th they're pretty elaborate, like, and so depending on the, on the, um, source of the distortion, um, it could be as simple as this. Anytime you want to study, like say institutions, like what do you want out of, out of government? What do you want out of education? You need to put that in trade-offs. Like th there's, there's not enough time and money. You can't have everything. And so in that one, we use a methodology called conjoint analysis, which is widely used in other sectors where I, you develop, like, say, for example, in education, develop a comprehensive list of all the things that education could be, its outcomes, its processes. And rather than just ask people, like, do you want, uh, you know, mastery learning, um, you actually put those into trade-offs. So you're asking if you were doing that survey with me, you're seeing on the screen, Hey, um, which of these two things is your ideal, like say education system. And, and it'll just randomly grab, say there's 50 attributes. Uh, school a has these five attributes. School B has these five. And that's all, you know, and you're like, well, you know, I guess school A is closer to what I'd want. Great. Do it again. Do it again until you've traded off every attribute against every other attribute. So, well, what's nice about it is like some things you'd be like, you'd be like, oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that, but it, it's like embedded with other things. So there's no way anyone would know. Anyway, so the end result is I can, I can get a profile for you of your trade-off priorities for any institution. Now, the, the, the methodology for if you're lying is <laughs> right. a little tougher, right? Like this is, so we call it like true serum and, and it's actually methods that like the IRS uses to decide to estimate how many people cheat on their taxes. Because the only people who would be publicly say they cheat on their taxes are people who are in jail or <laughs> don't mind going to jail. Right. So this one, just, just to be a little wonky is let's take the statement. Like I have cheated on my taxes. Okay. So you'll have for public opinion, we'll just point blank, ask people to get a random sample of people. And you just say, do you agree or disagree with that statement? Okay. And you'll get some number. And then to get to private opinion, this is what you have to do. And this is why it's time consuming and expensive. You will, um, you have those, those, what we call, uh, sensitive items. 
that you know people won't tell the truth on. You build what's a control set of items for every sensitive item. And what that means is we'll get like four statements like uh, recessions are a natural part of the economy. People have different views, but they're not like, oh, I can't tell you. I think recessions are, are a part of the economy, right? right. Um, and we know how people respond to them. And so what you do is you give a control group four of those at a time and say, how many of these four do you agree with? Okay, so fine. Now the experimental group, the, the magic is take those four and add in the sensitive item. So now there's right. five. And you ask a new random sample of people, <laughs> how many of these five do you agree with? And then you can actually subtract from this. You can get a really reliable estimate of, of the real position that people have for that sensitive item. So it is a, it's a, it's yeah. a trick of methodology, but you're not tricking yeah. people. <laughs> you're not tricking people because, because what you're giving them and what you're giving them is, so imagine if, if I asked you, do you beat your kids? Right? Like, like, okay. Um, is, well, I, I know when you're asking me how many of these five do I with or cheat on your taxes, <laughs> be a little nicer. Um, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. I know that if I, um, if I say, if I say all five, then you know that I agree with that I cheat on my taxes or whatever. But the way it's been engineered is no one agrees with all four in the control right. and no one disagrees with all four. So right. they don't know that. That's the trick, right? And so yeah. so you say three or four, but let's say I jumped in and said, aha, right? I saw <laughs> you clicked four. You're like, but you don't know which four I was meaning. Yeah. You just know that I agree with four out of five. So it gives you the plausible deniability that methodology, that truth serum is particularly good when it comes to eliciting people's opinions on stuff they wish they could tell you, but don't believe they can. So right. like in today's context, right? People really feel resentful that they can't share their honest views, right? They just, they want to share them, but they're like, there's too big of a cost socially, economically. Under those conditions, you get really reliable estimates. Right, right. So, Richard, how do you describe how do we fix it? Serious. Playful. Open-minded. Argumentative. Liberal-leaning. Libertarian. Oh, we don't always have the same politics. But we do agree on this. For every problem, there ought to be a solution. A smart solution. We talk solutions on how do we fix it. With Jim Meggs. And Richard Davies. How do we fix it? You know, so I, I'm glad that you shared that because I, I wanted to have a context of, you know, the, the information that, that you shared in the book and the stories that you shared in the book and how you arrived at those. Because, you know, again, you know, going back to 2016, a lot of folks who even pay attention to polling are, are pretty cynical about, uh, how accurate, uh, a lot of polling is. So uh, I'm, I'm grateful, um, to hear, about the methodology um, and uh, the effort that's put into gathering um, gathering these insights. One of the central revelations it, it, from the book, and it, I kept on thinking about applications of what's happening in our culture today, in politics today, in the world today, um, especially in our country. Uh, you put it in another interview, you just simply said, we're not really divided so much as we think we're divided. So can you, can you explain yeah. that paradox? And, and I'll say, and I'll tell you this, like, I'm not looking for good news. I'm looking to really understand things, right? It, whatever the answer is, as long as we're accurate, we can try to find a way out of this problem, right? So if, if we really are as divided as it feels like we are, then we should face up to that fact. So right. in, let's take, um, well, we can, we study everything from like, what people want for the future of the country, what kind of life they want to live, what do they want for key institutions. And then we have these sensitive items, like their, their private views on all kinds of stuff that we don't, we don't like to say in polite company. <laughs> like, and so what is shocking to me, so let me back up and say, what we always do, um, and I think is really important to anyone who wants to do good research on, on opinion, like personal opinion, is every single question we ever ask, this is why it also gets expensive. Uh, we, we want to know what you think. And then we immediately ask you, what do you think most people would say? And then whatever the context is, most Americans, most people in your community, whatever your, your unit of analysis is, right? And that's so important, right? Because we're, we're social creatures and, and our 
estimate of what we think our group believes is a very good predictor of aggregate behavior. Because, <laughs> like, you'd like to believe that most people just say, I privately think X, so I'm going to do X. But it doesn't really work out that way, right? Like, what, what, what you think your group thinks influences behavior for a lot of people. And so what we found is, and, and look, we've known about, say, like, conformity bias for a long time. And we know the problem of things like groupthink, where we just all go along to get along. There's something like, I believe, new now in our social media age that it's just we have not had to grapple with at scale until now. And that's this. Okay, so fine, we have a conformity bias. That's that's problem. But the way your brain estimates group consensus is kind of buggy. It, it yeah. literally is the shortcut is the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. And it, it, back in the day, if you were in small groups, it, it obviously worked enough to, to be selected for as a shortcut, right? Um, yeah. But, but just put it into, into social media context now. The strength of social media is its democratizing tendency. Anybody can have a voice, right? right. That's also its double-edged sword. So if you take Twitter alone, uh, research suggests that roughly 80% of all content is generated by only 10% of the users. And Pew Research has found that those 10% aren't remotely representative of the broader public. They tend to be extreme on almost every social issue. But you can see the problem here, right? Like, if only 10% of people hold a view, but you think it's 80%, then you will believe, your brain's going to assume that's the majority opinion. And unless you're willing to go against your group, you're either going to say nothing, or if it really is incentivized enough, you might lie about your view to, to curry favor or avoid re, uh, punishment from the group. And so it's not surprising. And this is what we call like a collective illusion, right? So into that mix, you've got, you're misreading the majority, you're going along to get along, and your behavior becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And then entire groups end up doing something that almost nobody in the group wanted. And right. so this is why it, it worries me right now when in the U.S., for example, we consistently find upwards of 60% of people admit to self-silencing right now. They, they, they just don't think they can be honest about their views. And I'm just like, so, so when we deploy this stuff and look for these collective illusions, what we found, and I think we probably have more private opinion data on the American public than, than anybody else. I, I, I'm quite certain that's true. Take any issue that matters, and it's a coin toss whether you are right about what your group really believes. Mm. <laughs> it's that bad. I mean, you, and politics is littered with these illusions, and and that that's what's so frustrating. So, like in the U.S., I can tell you there are things we are privately privately divided on. Immigration is probably the the top of that list. No matter how we've what method we've used, th there is a deep private split there. But that's actually the exception, not the rule. I mean, we did this, we did one um, on the aspirations for the future of the country. And and that was like trade off like upwards of 60 things that, that the country could focus on and care about. And, and um, before we did it, we just used regular polling questions and asked people, do you think we're more united or divided? And 80 something percent said, oh yeah, definitely more divided. Uh, half of those people said, extremely divided what was even worse if you cut it by who you voted for in the last election a majority of both sides said the other side no longer shares their values for the country I mean, right so in that context you give those same exact people this private opinion instrument that you can't fake and lo and behold it was shocking how similar the highest priorities they have for the country are like for example out of the top 10 highest aspirations, people who voted for Joe Biden and people who voted for Donald Trump shared eight of them in common. Wow. <laughs> like, but here's the problem. They didn't believe they did. They when So right. when, when, when you ask Republicans, what do you think other people say? Oh, no, no. Like, th they don't care about that. Like, for example, individual rights was still a top priority for everybody, but they didn't think it was. Right. Um, Interestingly, uh, addressing climate change was a top 10 priority, even for Trump voters, but they didn't believe it was for Trump voters. You know what I mean? So, so yeah. I, th th this is a long wind up to say, 
it's important to distinguish the source of this friction. If it really is private disagreement, there's a way to address that, and it's hard, but you need to do it. Collective illusions present a different problem that requires a different strategy. And if you don't mind, you cut me off as soon as I keep rambling, but let me tell you why that this is such a problem. Under collective illusions, I, I'm not telling the truth because I believe something about my group. If you try to persuade me that I should care about this, it doesn't cha- it, it literally reinforces the illusion. And, and I'll give you a concrete example of this, that, that why it matters to me. Do you remember back in the 90s in the U.S., there was like the say no to drugs? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah okay. the 80s. This is your yeah, brain yeah. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So the whole that, Friday that, thing, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That was born out of um, uh, an increase in first-time drug use amongst teenagers. The government was like, this isn't good. And they spent a billion dollars back then, which was a, a lot of money, on an advertising, this advertising campaign with the best advertisers in the country jumping in. And from an advertising standpoint, it was like incredibly successful. The typical American teen saw three ads per day for six years. Right. So great. In terms of ads, great. The problem was the entire campaign was based on the assumption that the reason kids were trying drugs is because they were curious about drugs. But even back then, there was private opinion data that showed that wasn't true, that they Mm. were skeptical about drugs. What they wanted was to fit in. And American teenagers were under a collective illusion. They thought most teenagers were doing drugs, which is kind of crazy to think about it. You think half the half of teenagers in the country are like high all the time, but like, but this is what they believed, right? Okay. So under that illusion, you blitz them with a billion dollars of ads trying to scare them straight. Right. Not surprisingly, in the in the post mortem on it, scholars have found that what what these kids interpreted from all these ads was this must be what we're doing, because why would adults try so hard to get us to stop? So the result was no kidding. The campaign itself directly led to increases in drug use among teenagers. So so. This is the, this is the issue. And so under collective illusions, the strategy is more about social proof. It's not about persuasion. And, um, and so that's what I'm excited about at the same time troubled by. The troubling part is we, democracy doesn't function very well when we profoundly misunderstand each other like this. That's the downside. The upside so, is collective illusions are fragile because they're lies. And right. If you understand, if you can identify them and deploy the right strategy, you can shatter them in a hurry and unlock social change at a pace and scale that would seem unimaginable otherwise. So you just said social proof versus persuasion. Could you expand on what you mean by social proof? You bet. You bet. So social proof comes in three flavors, right? So obviously persuasion is I'm going to tell you, you really shouldn't do drugs. Let me lay out the argument why they're bad for you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. That's persuasion. Um, okay. Social proof is like how it comes in three flavors. And we use this in our culture work. It's, it's so much fun with pop culture and stuff. So the first is like trusted authority. So like if I hear from someone I really respect, uh, that matters. It's actually hard to come by right now, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> like who, who do people trust anymore? But the second one is backgrounding. And this is really cool. This is very powerful. So Instead of being in your face, you don't do public service announcements. You take the private opinion that's under a collective illusion and you just put it in the background of television shows, movies, music, conversations. It's not in your face. And the reason this works so well is another kind of fun thing about your brain, which is even with fictional, like, say, TV shows, um, your, your brain treats those characters as part of your in-group. Even though intellectually you know they're they're fictional, so yeah. anything going on there, it's it's a signal like this is what we believe. And, I, and I'll tell you who used that backgrounding to an incredible effect was the, the folks around the designated driver campaign. That was invent like that was a Scandinavian idea brought to America. And how crazy is it that you're going to convince people? We're all going to go out, and one of you is not going to have any fun. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like it's like that's a hard sell. But they used this, um, they did this, remember Cheers, like the, yeah, sure. the TV show? So they were the first to use this backgrounding social proof. 
and all they did was they didn't have a main character do it. Sam Malone is at the bar and there's just like an extra who's sitting there. And he says, Hey, what do you have? And, and the guy says, nothing for me. I'm the designated driver. Okay. You do that all over. So people start to think, Oh, I've heard of this. Oh, this is a thing. Right. So we do that. We used to do similar things with pop culture and music and news where you're just seeding the background and people's brains are picking up like, Oh, this is, this is what we do. This is what right. we believe. The final thing, and I think this is really important um, for for the rest of us, is the, the the third element of social proof is is falls under like contact theory, which is I just need to hear from people that are like me with similar constraints, right? Like, so if I hear a celebrity tell me, "Just speak your truth, it's fine," I'm like, "Come on, like you're rich and famous, like so what? <laughs> if if people get mad at you, you can go cry in your mansion and like whatever." <laughs> but if I hear from my neighbor, Right. That um, that they feel similar to that. I, I do. It is incredibly powerful. The, the group that used that aspect of social proof the best was actually in the marriage equality movement, the gay rights movement. They had the, the come out of the closet campaign, which took incredible bravery. But if you look at public opinion support for gay marriage, that curve looks identical to but just lagging behind the curve of do you know someone who's gay? Right. Right. And so, so I, I bring that up because, you know, it's easy to think under collective illusions that it requires some massive systemic intervention or just folks like me being able to pull some levers of culture. But in reality, we all have a really important role to play in our willingness to be courageous and respectful enough to be honest with the people that matter most to us about our opinions. And um, I'll just say, uh, if you don't think it's worth it, it's pretty shocking what these everyday voices can accomplish. Um, And I still would, I would argue like the best example of what can happen for a society when you recognize a collective illusion and take efforts to shatter it is actually the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, which I touched on in the book. Yeah, yeah. The 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 grocer who said one day, "I'm not going to put that sign out." Yeah, you know, he, he, he didn't. Yeah, and and the thing is, is for 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 your listeners, there's a a pamphlet. It's not really a manifesto called "The Power of the Powerless," written by Václav Havel, who led that revolution. It's like 80 pages. It's free online. It is the most inspirational. Like, go download it and read it right now. You'll be, it'll sound like he's speaking to us today. Um, but he lays out the thing about the Velvet Revolution, which is unbelievable, is it wasn't led by a military general or a politician. Václav Havel was a poet and a playwright. Yeah, and 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 he's the re, the way he discovers the collective illusion that is that he writes this 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 satire of communism called the Garden Party, and it has to be so subtle that the censors don't even know they're being made fun of, so they let it go. And yet he sat there and watched. It became a runaway hit. It was like the Hamilton of its time. It was sold out for the, its whole run. And he he sat there for every one. <clears throat> and he said, they laughed at all the right parts. They <laughs> laughed at stuff you would not find funny if you truly believed in communism. Right. And so he realizes the problem is not that they believe in it. It's that they think everybody believes in it. And so he 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 and his colleagues develop a body of work called the Small Works Projects. And he, he called it like personal authenticity. And he was made fun of like people said, like, this is ridiculous. You are not overthrowing an authoritarian regime, <laughs> like with authenticity, right? like, like, and yet, so they do the work and, and even Havel is shocked by the speed of the change because a few months before the student uh, protest that would unleash be the end of the regime, he was interviewed in an international magazine. And he's like, Hey, look, I'm in it. I'm in it for the long haul, but let's be clear. I probably won't live to see the the change, right? It just takes time. Three months later, he was the first democratically elected president of a free Czechoslovakia. Wow. Right. Yeah. So I, I look at that and think, look, if a poet and a playwright can overthrow communism <laughs> under a collective illusion, just imagine what we can do like right now in society where we've got problems but 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 our, the solutions are right in front of us if we can just recognize the true source of the friction. It is not that we are irrevocably divided as a people. 
It's that we believe we are divided as a people. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I make a point of talking to people I know I disagree with. Uh, sometimes it's a very focused disagreement, whether it's about gun legislation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's dispositional. Um, I, I identify like you as an independent. So there are some issues where I might be thought of as a conservative, others that I might be thought of as a uh, progressive. Um, it just depends on the issue. It depends on the politician. Yeah. Um, but either way, so I, I try to make a point of putting myself in front of people who dispositionally uh, we think we disagree about stuff. But it's amazing that once you start to get to know somebody, you know, hey, why why do you think that? What what in your uh, somebody gave me a great um, a great way to approach a conversation. Um, and it's actually part of the Braver Angels, which is coming up. Uh, it's a it's a gathering at Gettysburg, a great organization that makes a point of trying to get people together across our differences. And a great question is, what in your life experience um, has led you to hold such a strong opinion about this? You know, mm. and then it gets people talking about their story. It humanizes yeah. them. You know, I it's love really that. Amazing. Yeah. And, and what's what's great about that is, look, again, we, that kind of approach. And, 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 and leaning into understanding the why behind someone's opinion, it, it's like, if you, the neuroscience of this, which I, I really think is fascinating is when you look at, we think we, we want everyone to agree with us. And of course we like it when people do, but in reality, we are rewarded neurologically just for feeling understood. Yeah. That, that and, was an amazing under, like a, an amazing revelation that is that, it's almost like um not not like being on drugs, but there's like a chemical thing that happens. Yes. When, yeah. And and so and so the thing is is think about like so as we approach each other and we feel like, oh, we're on opposite sides of something, that might be true, but you lose nothing by inquiring about the why. Like what led you what what aspect of yours that led you to hold this view? Okay. So number one, you might actually learn something. Like, I think I'm right all the time and I'm probably wrong half the time. So, I mean, not on this podcast because everything I'm saying is 100% true. Yeah. So a good question is not, why are you such an asshole? That's not it. Yeah. That's not a good yeah. Point. I mean, we already, we already know the answer, right? Like, but but I, I feel like what, 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 this is the danger of, so once you perceive a sort of us versus them, and that could be because you are privately divided and you're, you're going right. tribal. But collective illusions create the impression of that and the results the same. So we become tribal. And the best description of that consequence is what they call affective polarization, right? We hate each other and we don't even know why. Like, like I just read a study of like in California that Republicans and Democrats, they're not even arguing over policy anymore. They just hate each other. Right. (laughs) You're like, you're just bad. And like, and it's funny. And I'm sure. You engage too, but all the politicians I know, it's like, what's the goal? Own the libs. Like, that, that's not a goal. That, that's like not actually a goal, right? Like you, you need right. to have some constructive policies, but, but the idea of like engaging, if you realize number one, you may not actually disagree. It, 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 it is a 50 50 proposition that this is a collective illusion. And so you just presume that you're on opposite sides. And so you're not talking to each other, right? But what if, like, what if you actually agree and, and <laughs> that's awful. So like you have a reason to at least lean in. Second, like if you realized that you can get 80% of, of the success of this, not by converting them to your view, but simply having them feel like you understood where they're coming from. Right. Yes. Like, like, yeah. so then what are we doing? Right? right. And I feel like what bothers me is there's so many problems uh, and this is, I'd, I'd say, both sides of the spectrum here. We just end up moralizing. And it's like, cool, you feel better, I guess, but you made no progress. Life is right. not better for the people you're championing. <laughs> so I, I just think like this, this having these conversations is by far the fastest path to shattering illusions and getting back on a path uh, of more constructive dialogue. That's That's interesting because... The, a lot of, I think the impression that people have it is generated by, I, I think of it as like algorithmic politics, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a politician or a candidate which, which you know, uh, reads the report from Win Red or Act Blue and they get certain words and certain phrases that they know they have to work into every 
beach. Uh, you know, the three times a day for six years kind of a thing, yep. but in yep. politics form. And it, it does the work of what uh, you described one story about uh, the, how Russian bots worked, that mm-hmm. it wasn't persuading. It was taking a, per, a, a pers- some, somebody who's already been persuaded and pushing it that much further, you know, taking right. something. The, the story about um, it wasn't Olympia Snow, it was the, uh, uh, the current senator, um, uh, main main senator. I, I can't believe I forgot the. It used to be Olympia Snow, and now it's. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. I can't believe I, I just completely blanked. How are we both having this problem at the same time? This is great. <laughs> the other senator from Maine, that she, um, the Russian bots just kind of advanced this idea that she, yep. you know, that she supported um, the ACA or something like that. That's um, right. And, and, and that's exactly right. And, and it, that's the thing, as I think that all the Russian conversation and China does this on steroids compared to Russia, the idea that there's, seeding like misinformation is like minuscule compared to what they're really doing. Cause, cause the truth is, is spreading lies has a limited effect to be perfectly honest. Like at some point it's just like, but what they do to your point is they will, they will analyze say conservative Twitter, liberal Twitter, identify fringe views. So they're real views, right. And then swarm and amplify through retreats, retweets, and then attack um, counter views to that. And right. you can, it, research shows that you can, it doesn't take more than 15%, 12 to 50% of all interactions to be with bots where the bots can literally completely determine group consensus. And we're yeah. so far past that percentage in what we interact with. And so just recognizing that our technologies have, have taken us past a point where you can trust your brain to accurately read group consensus. That, that, that's gone forever. No policy, no anything will ever be able to bring that back. So what we're left with is if you care for your own integrity, or even if you just care for the integrity, of the group that matters to you, mm. you owe it to each other to be respectfully honest about your opinions. Because if not, you may literally destroy the very group that you're trying to protect and belong to by conforming to what you think the opinion is. It, yeah. It's that big of a deal. You know, so, okay. So first of all, a Russian bot just told me that it is uh, Susan Collins. <laughs> hey, there you go. There you go. As I was saying, um, I, oh, let, let, and since we can edit this, oh, you mean Susan Collins. Let, let me give you yeah, the, thank yeah, you, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. You're welcome. It's, um... uh, so the, uh, I have the quote here. It's really <laughs> profound. Uh, in the book, you said one of, you were talking about Russian bots. Uh, one of their most insidious skills was to pile support behind a few human outliers. This way, the extreme sentiment comes from a real American, while the bots are agreeable, but just polarizing enough to tip the scales. You were quoting from a, a study. Uh, one of the professors was Darren Linville from Clem- mm-hmm. Clem- Clemson University. Um, and his uh, what he said was, people are persuaded by things they're already inclined to believe, not by someone yelling at you. The trolls are trying to be your friends, not your enemies. So That's right. I think we could we could duplicate, we could take that tactic and use it for good, where we can, yeah. if we seek to understand someone, at least they'll feel heard, even if we walk away disagreeing on a lot of stuff. But I think it puts us in a better pers- um, position to maybe be influenced by them or vice versa. So That's right. um I did want to pick up on uh, something that you just said, uh, and then and then I, I want to start to land this plane. Um, <laughs> there was a great book written a, f- a few years ago by one of the um, founders of Pixar, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I think that one was Creative Inc. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was Creative yeah. Inc. And the, by, by one Susan of the, Collins, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, it was. Um, and now I'm forgetting the name of the author. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> but he, one of the central themes of it was radical candor or loving candor in any room. You know, if everybody is just, you know, saying, Oh yeah, that's terrific. It doesn't advance the conversation. So um, I'd love for you to elaborate on that, but specifically like when, when you talked about it in the book, what came to mind is that sometimes that costs us sometimes when, you know, I, it's happened to me in Bible studies where I said, wait a second uh, on immigration. Actually, um, I was just reading a, a chapter in numbers and it's clear that like, it, not only was, was that people, um, 
historically, so I wouldn't say open border, but there were all of these laws from Hebrew Bible, even into the New Testament yeah. about not just welcoming the stranger, but making them one of us and how yeah. we, how specifically we do that. I was in this Bible study where it was clearly like everybody in the, everybody else there was like anti-immigration, closed border. I'm like, wait guys, can we keep reading this chapter? It, and I just, I ended up getting yeah. kicked out of the Bible but, study. But, <laughs> <laughs> the, but, but so here's what's interesting, right? Like, let's think about what you proposed before about the kind of conversations we have. What we found with immigration is even when there's polarizing sentiment, if you don't get under the hood and understand what is driving that, right? Yes. Are some people just really not great human beings and they just don't give a shit about like, the, the the meek and the poor and the people seeking better lives. Sure. I don't think that's even, that's called Yankee. That's exactly right. Exactly. right. (laughs) And you know, they're just, they're just like, no, I I want the, 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 but here's the thing underneath that is rarely that level of just bad person. There's some fear that might be real or might have been stoked for political gain. Right. So you could imagine um, for a lot of folks who have had incredible economic disruption, uh, despite the gains of globalization, there have been real disruption and they have not landed evenly across this country. Um, They're feeling unfairness and you can have a demagogue that tells them the reason this is unfair is it's immigrants taking a job. That sounds plausible. It's certainly not true. Like it's a pretty big fallacy, the lump of labor fallacy, right? doesn't matter. But like, or they're worried about crime. It's like, unless you, you spend a half a second trying to understand what their experience are that lead them to feel so strongly about that, we can never make progress. We can't, right? Because like, it, it, what's really interesting, I'll, I'll tell you, we, we have a, a another big distortion of, of public uh, opinion is the difference between the abstract statements and concrete behavior where, where they're not one-to-one. So I'll give you an example. When we study um, abortion, incredibly polarizing at the attitudinal level, right? Pro-life, pro-choice, there are not a lot of in-between. <laughs> like, you know, and, and, that, and most people on either side see the other side as immoral. You either murder babies or you hate women, right? <laughs> I mean, this, this is the, now here's what's funny. The, the commitment one way or another around abortion probably centers on less than half a dozen policies. You know what I mean? They're, right. it, 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 they're real concrete things, right? When you actually build the composition. So here's your attitudinal thing where your identity is tied and you're polarized. Okay. Now let's look at what your composition of commitments are to those policies and behaviors. It is unbelievable. The overwhelming supermajority of Americans have almost identical compositions in the concrete, and yet half of them think they're pro-life, half of them think they're pro-choice, and they hate each other, even though they're literally the same person. Right. right. So unless we have a conversation and we lead with respect and we genuinely want to know what led you to hold that, you're never solving this. But it's pretty remarkable when you're willing to enter that conversation with like genuine respect. I mean, like, and, I, and it's not, it's not, um, it's not cool these days, right. To, to actually respect people you disagree with. And, and it's easy to say, no, you're beyond the pale, right. Your views right. are so bad that, that I'm not going to platform you by talking to you or whatever. And you're like, that's the cheapest cop out. Like that. It, it's, it's just, there's no place for that. We can always have conversation. We do not lose by talking to other people. Right. Yeah. It's a, I feel like we, we've only scratched the surface here. Uh, but I, I'm glad it's, it's a great primer and a great introduction to, uh, not just your, your books, um, uh, but also to the work that Populist is doing. Um, so I, I do want to, it, I should share this quote because it, it really touches at one point in the book. He said, when individuals conform to what they think the group wants, they can end up doing what nobody wants. That is the click. The collective illusions, dark magic. So again, great intro um, to to your work, and I, I hope folks do look up Populous. I, I have a couple more questions, and then we'll wrap up. One, we've already been talking about this. This is what I call the TPNR quest: and talk politics and religion without killing each other. What do you think each of us can do uh, to be able to share space with 
to have better conversations with, perhaps even to nurture relationships with people across these types of differences, people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we be better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible? I think there's two things. So the first thing is, if you want to be part of the solution, we're not trying to convert everybody to our views. Um, back to what we talked about before. If you would be just commit to having one conversation where you're willing to say, tell me about your life that led to these views without trying to change their mind. I think one experience like that will transform you. Like you will, the odds are, I'm going to tell you, you're going to make a friend. Yeah. The odds are, and you're going to be like, I can't believe we're friends. Like, you know, even if we disagree on this, but, but like, Hey, you know, um, or you're going to realize even in being willing to lean in, there was not a disagreement to begin with. It was a collective illusion like that. I think, okay. So if, if you do one thing that, and it's not that hard to do, like, and, and I, I wrote this in the book, like the, the research on this is really clear. People love being asked about themselves, even when they're polarized, you are at no risk for asking someone about what led them to hold that view, provided they don't feel like you're about to lower the hammer on them for holding yeah. that view. Right. You are at no risk and you will add an enormous amount of good in society from that simple act. I promise. That's the yeah. first thing. If you want to sort of ninja level this up, here's what you do. And this will sound so like really this, but it is so important. If you want to get out of this toxic polarization, this perceived polarization and the distrust that it fuels and unfairness and resentment that it breeds, the single thing that you could do to have an effect is acts of service. No acts of service are miracles. Like, and, and like just go serve somebody else. It doesn't have to be massive and ideally someone that's not in your tribe, but you know what, even then just acts of service. And here's why right now we've got this distrust, discontentment, resentment that is just consuming us. Gratitude. The experience of gratitude is the single best antidote to resentment and distrust. And the single best way to experience gratitude, believe it or not, is actually acts of service. So I'm just like, have the conversation, seeking to understand just once, and get back to this idea of serving other people. And again, it doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be all that frequent. But if you did those two things at least once, number one, you're going to make society a lot better place. And I think it will pull you out of this tailspin that we're all experiencing individually and collectively. You know, it's a really good point. I, I'm remembering a story that Moni Guzman, Monica Guzman shares in her book. I never thought of it that way. And it drives to exactly that. That's the goal is to have a conversation where there's a possibility of you having this realization. Oh, I never thought of it that way. She describes a story of bringing a bunch of people from a very, very blue county in Washington state to a very, very red county in uh, northern Oregon. And um, the uh, part of the day, part of the event started with uh, the folks uh, in the they were in their home county, the, the red county, uh, just serving lunch. You know, um, and it's just something small, you know, but but starting to starting that way, serving lunch, breaking bread together. Um, and, and one of the one of the funny uh, uh, moments was uh, I, I forget how it came up, but, you know, what what bothers you? And one of the guys who was there uh, picked up a piece of bread from lunch and said, a lot of you folks from Port uh, Seattle have no idea how this got on your plate what it took to get from my field to your plate. You know, it's just a really interesting understanding each other better, humanizing each other, acts of service. So, um, yeah, yeah. So uh, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, actually. So it's interesting because, I mean, you know, we're coming at these things from different perspectives and different, you know, comparative advantages. I mean, you talk to a lot of people, you see a lot of things. I'm, I'm interested in, some of the, when you think about what's going on in society from your perspective, is there anything that you feel like, like I should know? Like, you know what I mean? What, what do you see? Like, like, what do you think is, is important um, beyond what we've already talked about 
Um, or, or do you see problems we're not thinking about right now or hidden, hidden good things that we're not talking about? Right. Like if that makes any sense, just. It does. It does. I far be it from me to tell you what you don't know <laughs> or what you need to know. Um, you know, but the, there's something in the way, the way we, I, I touched on it before about how politicians are getting their talking or candidates are getting their talking points. Um, there's something very algorithmic about it. Now you talk about social media, um, and how social media is pushing out posts for, you know, what I see is driven by certain algorithms to derive mm-hmm. a certain engagement or a certain reaction. But I think it's even more pervasive than that. It, and it hasn't always been an algorithm driven thing. I've talked to, uh, a couple of different guys who had national profiles as conservative, uh, media uh, hosts, conservative radio hosts who are now like never Trumpers. And they both shared a similar, um, approach to their work when, when they had this, this huge national audience. And it, it was something similar. What they, what they did was they would find a story about, and they're, they were conservative. So they were looking for some idiot who could be identified as a progressive. And it was just this random story, this one-off thing. Uh, they, they, one guy referred to it as nut picking. And he would make an entire show, if not an entire week, about some nut who did something stupid that he yeah. can refer to as a progressive. And then the rest of the show is, this is what they do. So taking yeah. this one-off thing, you know, so I don't know, for, for, to understand, I guess, I guess what I'd want to know is how we can reverse, uh, reverse that trend, how we can yeah. name it, um, diagnose it. And then find, I think we're already talking about the cures to that, which is like relational, you know, it's not just consumption and transactional, but relational, but that's, that's what I'd want to really, um, I'd really want to tackle is how are we developing our, our perception? How are we developing this perception that even though we agree on a lot of this stuff, like a, a silly, a silly story would be as a Met fan, I'm a Met fan every, every day. I sit down and I feel like I'm sitting down. I don't know why I'm getting emotional, but um, I'm sitting down and watching the game with my grandfather and my uncle who were diehard mm-hmm. Mets fans. I was raised on watching the Mets. And I feel like they're, even though they've passed away, I feel like they're in the room with yeah. me. I make fun about Yankee fans, but a friend of mine who's a Yankee fan, that's how he grew up too. He, he you know, mm-hmm. as, as Bob Costa said, when I couldn't talk about anything else with my father, I could still talk about baseball, you yeah. know, so just understanding people. But that's a that's a long way around the barn, but th- those are some of the ingredients that come to mind. I'd have to. Yeah. Think of, it's a great question, though. So I, I'd have to think a lot more about it. I love it. Yeah, it's boy. It's I, I feel like you know, I think every time in in human society where big technologies have come in and fundamentally disrupted things, let's go all the way back to like Socrates and the the rise of the printed word instead of oral tradition. It's always the upside is always matched by profound downside until we realize that there's some skill, some mindset that we have to acquire and adapt to, to mitigate the downside and, and, and get all the upside. Um, you know, in the case of oral tradition to print, it requires literacy. You have to learn how to read or that's not a good trade-off. And <laughs> right. we did. And what happened is the clergy and the elites hoarded that skill until the reformation. It took an act of God if you will, to democratize that thing. And, and I think we're, we're in that space now where the very thing that should have been a source of greater wisdom, greater human connection, right, um, is, is literally tearing us apart because of our same social nature, right, being misused. And so thinking through the understanding of that and the skill and, and, and behaviors that we have to be willing to engage in I think is really fundamental right now um, because it'd be a damn shame if we're, we're done under by <laughs> something. It's one thing to, to lose this great American experiment on our own volition. Like, like it just didn't work. Right. right. Whole nother thing to lose it under an illusion. Right. <laughs> so, so I feel like there's a, there's a, a moment here um, and I'm getting sentimental thinking about as we come on up to the 250th anniversary of the country and thinking about what we want to commit to as we try to make a more perfect union. I think these are the conversations we have to have. And I actually believe that is going to give us a moment and a reason 
to be thinking about some of these things. So the more we think about these kind of questions, I think we can sharpen them and, and come up with something where we can have a national conversation under the umbrella of the 250th anniversary, which I think would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about, um, I think if we tease this out a little bit, I think we could arrive at a place where the, the, the folks who perpet- who perpetrated the French Revolution and the Jacobins were somehow even more admirable than than what we're doing today. You know, <laughs> that's um, so true. <laughs> anyway, so how can folks follow you? Learn, uh, you know, get your books and learn more about Populous and all the great yeah. work that you and your team are doing. Yeah, um, Populous dot org um, is a site. We post all of our research there, um, and then I I try to not be on social media too often, but I am there. <laughs> it's like, it's at L Todd Rose, L T O D D R O S E. Um, and that's a good way to follow me. So I, I forgot to ask you earlier, and this was the one that, that maybe just, it's not really a joke, but I was curious what the, the Lida Rose, is that how your mom pronounces her name? Uh-huh. Do you know the song? <laughs> that, that was that was part of it. Yeah. It's it's funny. Uh, what what an obscure thing. Like she's yeah. It's uh, it, it, she gets that all the time. It's, I'm it's sure great. she does, and she's probably tired of it. So sorry I even brought it up, but I couldn't. I couldn't. Uh, wanted, listen, anything. Listen, I, she'll be happy. She'll be happy. She was referenced. So <laughs> that's hi, great. mom. Yeah, there you go. Okay, is there anything I, important I forgot to ask you that we need to cover before we close? Nope. Just keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you so much. It was really great, man. I got more than I bargained for, and uh, I hope it's not the last time we, we hang out. Yeah, I hope so, too. This is terrific. Thank you. That's awesome. Thanks, Todd. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and tell a friend about Talk Politics and Religion without killing each other. We're really easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E. S is Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.